0: Well, it's uh, It's great to be with you guys. I love coming up here to the Lake Mary campus. I love being able to worship uh, with you all. And I'm very excited that I get to uh, kind of give the message that then sends us out into our Nice Serve week. I love Nice Serve. I love that Nice Serve has been a part of the DNA of this place since almost the beginning. And so this week, as I was thinking about, okay, what, what should we talk about? Where, where, where should we kind of uh, spend our time as we prepare for this week? I kept coming back to the why, like why serve? Because the thing is, is you and I, we could go out into this week and we could serve and we could give our three hours and and we could do a whole lot of God honoring work and we could still miss it. We could still miss why. I have told this story um, on Easter at the Herndon campus, so if you were at Herndon on Easter for some reason, uh, you've already heard this, so I apologize that you'll hear the same story, but I'm assuming most of you weren't at Herndon on Easter, and so um, I want to I share a story with you that happened a couple months ago. I was uh, I was taking my whole family, I got five kids, if you don't know that, I have five kids. I was going to take my whole family to a political rally, um, which, which I've never been to a political rally in my life, but a friend of mine who, who also actually goes to this church was announcing his... Run for governor, and he's got kids my age, and um, not my age. He's got kids my kids' age, and I thought, you know, this will be fun. We'll take them to this. This will be an experience, and uh, and so we went, and it was at night, and um, and whenever we take five kids anywhere, like it's a thing, and it's a little bit stressful. And being outside with a lot of people at this political rally, like I was a little bit nervous the whole time, but it went great. It was it was kind of a fun, neat experience, and. So we're going to leave and we parked kind of far away. So it was a little bit, you know, of a, of a situation trying to navigate the crowd and it was dark outside. We had to cross a pretty busy road. And, um, and so I'm doing the, the dad thing and I'm constantly counting, making sure we have everyone. And in front of me, I got my three older kids and one, two, three, there they are. Then I look back and my wife is about 200 feet behind me and she's pushing the double stroller. And I see my, my little baby boy, Huck. He's in the stroller. And then I notice that his two year old sister isn't. In the stroller with him, and I start looking around to see. Well, maybe is she walking next to my wife, and and she's not. And then I'm looking up at the three, and I'm thinking, are, are one of them holding her? And no, they're not. And so I'm looking around, and I cannot find our two-year-old. So I start just completely panicking and and really screaming. I start going, "Where's Prin? Where's Prin?" So you know, this crowd of people is like looking at me, like, "Who names their kid Prin?" And and, and 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 and. But I'm like, I cannot. Where Kelly? Do you have Prin? Like I am screaming at the top of my lungs. I, I'm just I'm. I'm getting so worked up. I'm looking up at the kids. I'm saying, kids, do you are know where print is. No one knows where print is. And then all of a sudden, I hear the sweetest little voice say, I hear daddy. Y'all, I was holding her. Whole time, she was right there. I was holding her. She was right there. And I completely missed it. I completely missed her. And one of the things I've been thinking about this week, and really, if I'm honest, this whole season. I mean, as a church, we've been studying together what it means to be on mission. We started this back in January. We looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. We spent several weeks talking about justice and and what the Bible has to say about justice. And and we did those those Sunday night things where we brought in people to talk about issues of justice. We spent some time looking at the people that Jesus had meals with. And, and, And as we've been doing all this studying, One of the things I've realized that I think I've missed most of my Christian life. I've been a Christian almost my whole life. I grew up in the church. You know, I worked in ministry for many years. One of the things that I realized that I've missed is the connection between a personal salvation, between your personal salvation and service. Serving the needs of the poor and feeding the hungry and seeking the outsider Now, I've always known that as Christians, we should do those things. It's not like I didn't think Christians serve and and Christians care about outsiders and all that. I knew that. But really over these past several months, as I've been studying scripture and as we've been specifically looking at these ideas about justice and service over the last few months, I've realized how often the Bible connects the gospel with service. That over the past few weeks, I've come to see how inseparable those two things are. Over and over again, the Bible connects a heart that is saved by grace alone through what Jesus did with a heart that responds to the poor and injustice. It's almost as if the Bible is saying that heart is one and the same. Why should a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ be passionately involved in service? Because a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that that's who they are. Now, I'm not saying that through service, one gets saved. That's not the case. But I am saying if you're saved, you'll serve. You won't be able to help it. It it becomes just who you are. I'm reading with my kids um, To Kill a Mockingbird right now at night, the older ones. And just this week, uh, we, we, we got to the part where Atticus Finch, who's a defense attorney, uh, he has these two young kids. And uh, we just got to the part where the kids are starting to get bullied at school because of who their dad represents. Their dad has just taken on a case where he's defending a black man who's accused of assaulting a white woman. And this is in rural Alabama um, back in like the 40s. and, And so the kids are being taunted. And so the kids are coming to their dad and they're saying, dad, why are you doing this? And this is what Atticus says to his kids. He says, this case... Tom Robinson's case is something that goes to the essence of a man's conscience. Scout, that's his daughter. I could not go to church and worship God if I did not try to help that man. You see, it's just who he was. It's who he had become through the gospel. It's who you and I are. This passage in Isaiah that we've been looking at as we were in this nicer series is a passage that's really part of a series of passages at the end of Isaiah that are often known as the, the songs of the servant of the Lord. And they're called this because they point to the servant of the Lord who will one day come and bring salvation to the whole world. Now in the New Testament, the servant of the Lord is identified as being Jesus. So these passages really Are all about Jesus. They're all prophesying who Jesus is and what he will come to do. They're really about our salvation. But like I said, our salvation is inseparably linked to our service. And here's how our salvation changes our hearts to what is happening. What will happen and what has happened. And in this passage we've been looking at in Isaiah 58, we see all three of these take place. So let's look at that together and we'll kind of unpack that. We're in Isaiah 58 and it's printed in your bulletin, but I'm not gonna read the whole thing. I'm gonna start in verse six. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression with pointing finger and malicious talk. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. This is God's word. So our heart is changed to what is happening. Look again at verses six and seven. In verse six, it says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of oppression and injustice, to set the oppressed free. And then in verse seven, he goes on to describe what that actually looks like. He says, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and to clothe him and to serve him? So in verse six, God says, I want you to do justice. And in verse seven, he says, justice is serving others. In fact, down in verse 10, we're told, spend yourself. We're told to spend yourself for the hungry and for the oppressed. All week, I kept coming back to those two words, spend yourself. That's not just giving someone a bit of money. That's not throwing someone a bone. That's inviting someone to the table. To spend yourself means that it involves your whole life. We're all gonna spend ourselves on something. So what are you spending yourself on? See, this passage makes it clear that service is not about charity. Charity is optional. We can, can, or cannot do charity. Charity is always optional. But service is about justice and justice is never an option. Now you might say, well, I I don't believe I owe the poor or the hungry or the outsider anything. If I wanna give to them, fine, but I don't owe it to them. In fact, if I don't give them, anything that's not unjust maybe it's uncharitable but it's not unjust but for the believer of the gospel of Jesus Christ service is not charity it's justice look again at verse 7 it says share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood now, that's interesting. That, that would have, when Isaiah was first telling God's people this, when he got to that part, they would have all perked up and been like, wait, what did he just say? Because your own flesh and blood, when we think of that, we think of family. We think of people that we're related to. But what has just happened here is the poor wanderer has been called your own flesh and blood. And that phrase poor wanderer means an impoverished person of another race. The word is often translated as stranger or alien. So an impoverished person of another race is your own flesh and blood. That's crazy. In fact, to the people who originally heard this, they were living in a patriarchal society where family meant everything, where your own blood meant everything. And so to say that a poor person from another race is part of your own flesh and blood would have been outrageous. Outrageous unless your heart had been changed to what is happening. God is essentially saying to his people, you've never locked eyes with someone who doesn't matter deeply to God. But more than that, you've never locked eyes with someone who shouldn't matter deeply to you, matter to you as if they were flesh and blood. Now, today's Mother's Day, and of course, we're honoring mothers. Mothers, I hope you felt loved this morning. I had to leave before my wife uh, got up this morning, so I left her Mother's Day present on the, on the kitchen table, and, uh, and I wasn't sure how it was gonna go, but she was at the nine o'clock service, and, and we're good. Uh, but I got her a leaf blower, um, so... Uh, um, she had asked for it and, and she'd asked for a crock pot a long time ago and I got her one for Christmas and that didn't go over well So I wasn't sure how today would go, but everything's great um, But that's not really the point 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 is today We're gonna scroll through Facebook or Instagram and we're gonna see lots of pictures of moms and we're gonna see lots of pictures of moms with babies and 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 moms as you think about that or as we look at moms with their babies You can know, you know in that moment, the first time a mom holds her baby, whether it's her own flesh and blood or not, whether it's biological or not, the moment she holds that baby, she thinks, I will spend myself completely on this being. That's what God is saying to his people He's saying your love for one another, the way you serve, the way you spend yourself on the stranger or the outsider or the poor or the hungry has got to have the same thing that when a mother looks at her baby, um, she thinks we're all going to spend ourselves on something. And God says, if you're my people, you will spend yourself like this. So that's the first thing. Now, secondly, your heart is changed to what will happen. I'm right now listening to, I love podcasts, I'm listening to the S-Town podcast, um, which if you're listening to it or if you're thinking about listening to it, I'm not going to spoil anything. I know I have a tendency to spoil things for people in my sermons, and I'm not. I'm not going to give away any of the details. Um, but the podcast is, uh, exists because a guy from a, from a small town in Alabama, Woodstock, Alabama, which is uh, just south of Birmingham, about 40 minutes south of Birmingham, um, writes in to the producers of This American Life, and he says, hey... In my town, there is some crazy stuff going on that no one can get to the bottom of, but I think if you guys come down and do a story on it, you can get to the bottom of it. And he claims that that there's been a murder in the town and that it's been covered up by the wealthy people in the town and that uh, and that no one will be able to find any evidence about it, but they maybe can. And so that's how the podcast starts. Uh, but what I've what I've really kind of latched onto as I've listened to the podcast, and as this guy from New York who's making the story goes to this small town in Alabama, as he gets to meet the people of this small town, um, is the attitude of the people there. Now, in the, in the podcast, um, they, 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 they say that there's an attitude that's pervasive in this town, um, which I'm going to call um, a poohit attitude. They, they used a different word, but, but a poohit attitude, like nothing matters. Like it, nothing's going to get better. And because nothing's going to get better, nothing matters, so, so we can do whatever we want. And he talks about how in this town, there's so much poverty that no one thinks they can get out of the poverty, that there's so much crime, that there's so much corruption, that the schools are bad. Like, it just seems like the town uh, has nothing going for it. And so the people of the town have a poo attitude. It doesn't even matter. Nothing's going to get better. Even if I try really hard, nothing will get better. Well, look back at verse eight in, in Isaiah 58. It says, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. See, this is telling us about the future God has provided and the future the servant of the Lord is going to bring. That someday the light will pierce through every dark crevice in our lives and in the world around us. That at one day everything that's sad will come untrue, that we will actually see beauty in the brokenness of things because we'll see how they've been restored. When it talks about healing, this is the same word that's used to describe the the rebuilding of the wall in Nehemiah, that there's going to be repair to everything that has been broken and lost, that there's coming a day when all poverty and all injustice and all hunger and all disease and all death and all suffering will be gone. That is the future, that God is not just going to take us to heaven one day, but that he's in the process of resurrecting us that he's in the process of making everything that is broken and lost new. Let me read you a passage um, from from Romans um, Romans 8. That's the Apostle Paul writing uh, about the future. Romans 8, starting in verse 18, it says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. He's saying creation, all of creation is waiting for us to be revealed as God's children. For the creation was um, subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up till the present time not only so but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we are saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all for hopes for what have already ha- for who hopes for what they already have but if we hope for what we do not yet have we wait for it patiently If we believe that's what God is going for, the end of all disease, the end of all poverty, the end of death and sickness, if we believe that He's that all of creation is groaning for it to be restored, and if we believe that will happen in the future, we should be healing the sick when we can. We should be feeding the hungry when we can. We should be going out and and seeking out the outsider when we can because that's the future. Because of what will happen, we serve. Every time we serve, we are showing that we believe in the future that God has promised us. So we don't adopt the attitude of John B. McLemore and all those people who live in Woodstock, Alabama, that's just poo it. No, because we know the end of the story. We know what it will one day be. And the, and the, and the beauty is, we're called to be a part of that ending of the story. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, that's great. Uh, I know that that should make me feel excited about this week and, and I should be you know, all excited about service. But if I'm truthful, I just am not. I, like, I'm very busy. It's been a rough week. I've got a, some own stuff in my life going on right now. Like, I, I, just, I, I know I should be excited about serving and I know it should be just what gets me up in the morning, but it's not. And I'm actually feeling kind of guilty that it's not. Now, if I ended the sermon here, Basically, everything that I've said up to this point could have been said in two words. Feel guilty, right? Hey, you've got a lot more stuff than a lot of people, than the poor people. Feel guilty. You aren't future-minded enough. Feel guilty. What are you spending yourself on? Feel guilty. Hey, moms, you know how you love your children and your babies? You need to love a homeless person just as much as you love your baby. And if not, that's unjust. Feel guilty, now let's go serve, let's pray, right? That would be a miserable sermon. That would be an absolute miserable sermon. But can I tell y'all that as I've been working on this and really throughout this entire last few months as we've been looking at On Mission, I found myself kind of resisting going here uh, w- with, with some of these, these sermons because every time I've heard a sermon preached on service, how I feel when I walk away is guilty, that I've realized that over and over again, when I hear about serving the needs of others, I walk away mostly feeling guilty. Now, maybe that has more to do with my own issues than what was actually being preached in these sermons. But I do think it has to do with the fact that for a long time, I saw salvation, personal salvation separated from service. That I, I hadn't really made the connection of how um, uninseparable, un- 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 that's not right, how inseparable they are together. And the way the Bible presents them over and over together. The third reason the Bible gives that a believer in the gospel of Jesus ought to be involved in serving others is the primary, primary one given in the Bible. And it's not what is happening or what will happen, but what has happened. When Christianity started, it spread rather quickly across the known world. And at the time, the Roman Empire was, was, was in charge of most of the known world. And we know that that Christianity just kept growing. Like, you couldn't get rid of Christians. Even if people were being killed for their beliefs, like, it just kept spreading. It kept growing. And a historian, Michael Frost, said this of the first Christians. He said, they surprised the world with their unlikely lifestyle. And it raised an insatiable curiosity among the average Roman. You see, these first Christians sacrificed for their enemies They loved people who it was difficult to love. They cared for the poor and the hungry. They sought out the outsider. Their whole lives were marked by service. Their lives were marked by spending themselves on other people, and it couldn't go unnoticed. In fact, in 350 AD, so this is is about 300 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is still exploding 300 years later. The Roman emperor Julian began to fear these servant-minded Christians. Because he thought they might actually be able to take down the greatest empire the world had ever known. He wrote this They have gained ascendancy in society, even in the worst of their deeds, through the credit they win for devoting themselves to caring for others. The emperor was worried that the empire would fall because a group of people devoted themselves to caring for others. So, this is his response. He decided to start an outlove the Christians campaign. He went to his officials and to his pagan priests, and he said, Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to outlove and outserve those Christians. In fact, he wrote this to, to, to his leaders. He said, I believe that we ought really and truly practice every one of these virtues that the Christians displayed. But you know what? His new social program utterly failed. He couldn't get it off the ground. He couldn't motivate his priests and his officials to care that much for the poor and the needy. Why? Because the emperor missed that Christians weren't motivated by building an empire, but by grace. Guilt never changes a heart, but grace always does. And the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is what had happened Going back to verse six of the Isaiah passage, it says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? What's that about? Well, in the passage right before this, we didn't read this. Actually, we're probably gonna read it. Let's read it. So uh, in the passage right before where we started reading, the Israelites have come to God and they've said, hey, we've done all this stuff. We fasted and fasted and fasted, and you haven't heard us. You haven't responded to us. And then God responds to them. So let me go ahead and read that. This is uh, starting in verse three we'll read a couple of these verses. So this is the Israelites. They say, why have we fasted? They say, and you have not seen it. We have humbled ourselves and you have not noticed. And then this is God's response. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fist. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it not for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And then verse six. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Now, It actually gets very specific here. In verse 5, when it talks about this day, this day of humbling yourself, it's referring specifically to Yom Kippur. Now, Yom Kippur was the one day a year that Israelites would come together and offer a blood sacrifice to atone for their sins. Yom Kippur, that's what it means, day of atonement. So Yom Kippur was a reminder to the Israelites that even if they had been trying very hard to live a good life, They've been trying to obey God's law. They have been trying to follow the Ten Commandments. Every year they would look back on their life and realize that they had failed, that they hadn't done enough, that they were not perfect. And so Yom Kippur was God's way of saying to them, there is no way that anyone can be in relationship with me through their own performance. The only way anyone can be in relationship with me is through atonement, through forgiveness and through grace. So on the day of Yom Kippur, every year, in order to show that they understood that their God was a God of grace, they would fast. Because fast is a way of humbling yourself. Fasting is a way to deny yourself. It's a way to say, I realize I'm a sinner saved by grace alone, so I will act humbly. But Isaiah, in this passage, noticed something about God's people. That even though the Israelites fasted, even though they observed Yom Kippur, their lifestyle hadn't changed. It said they still continued to exploit their employees by not paying them well enough. They weren't living lives of servants. They weren't spending themselves on others. They weren't seeking out the outsider. They were completely self serving still. And so God says to them, if you want to see the kind of life that should come from a knowledge of grace, the fasting I want is to spend yourselves for the poor, for the hungry, for the outsider. And if you're not caring for them, that shows that you missed it. That in fact, you did not understand grace. Now, to what degree could the Israelites really have understood the meaning of the blood sacrifice on Yom Kippur? To what degree could they really understand what it was pointing to? I mean, they knew in a general sense that it meant that their relationship with God was based on his mercy, but they couldn't really understand it. But you and I can In Isaiah 58, God is saying, you say, you know, I have atoned for your sins. You say, you know, about the blood sacrifice. You say, you know, you're saved by grace. But if you see a homeless person, if you see someone in need, if you see the hungry and you do nothing about it, it proves you don't know. And centuries later, Jesus Christ in Matthew 25 would take this Isaiah 58 passage and he would rework it. Jesus would look at his followers and he would say, on judgment day, I will look at some and say, depart from me. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you didn't come to look after me. And he says, they will answer him, well, wait, when, when did that happen? When did we see you hungry or thirsty? When, when were you a stranger? When were you in prison? And Jesus will look at them and say, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you also did not do for me. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying the exact same thing that God said through Isaiah. He said, if you actually know my love for you, if you actually know what I've done for you, if you see the atonement, then you will see the poor and the needy and you will love and serve the poor and the needy. And if you aren't doing that, You haven't seen my love. You haven't understood it. Now he's not saying if you serve the poor and the needy, you'll be loved, you'll be saved. No, he's not saying that, but he is saying, you know you're saved if you serve the poor and the needy. Elsewhere, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, if you were to stand before God right now, would you be willing to admit that there's absolutely nothing you have ever done to deserve his love. That even your best deeds have had evil motives. Would you be able to stand before God and say, I have not loved you, God, with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. There is nothing on which I could present you that you should find me acceptable and lovable. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means that you are morally and spiritually bankrupt. Jesus is saying, if you are morally and spiritually bankrupt, you will be blessed. That's crazy. He says, if you are morally and spiritually bankrupt, you will be blessed. If you are poor in spirit. See, the only way to be blessed is through the bleeding charity of God. That's what the cross is. That's why the cross changes everything everything about the way you and I live. That's why our personal salvation is tied so directly to service, to serving the needs of others. You and I, we can never look down at the poor or an outsider. We can never be condescending because we can never say, hey, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because we didn't. We can never look at at someone and say, hey, you're undeserving of my assistance because you got yourself into this situation. So did we, spiritually speaking, yet God's generosity has saved us. If you are truly poor in spirit, if you are spiritually poor, you will love the materially poor. You just will. Because when you look at them, you'll feel like you're looking in a mirror. You'll realize that when you look at them, it's a lot like how God looked at you, and yet he gave up everything for you. And if you and I, if we were to go to Jesus and we were to say, When did we see you naked? He would say to us, They cast lots for my garments. Or when did when did when did you say you were thirsty? He would say, On the cross, I said, I thirst. When did we see you as a prisoner? He would say, On the cross, I became condemned so that you could be accepted. See, when we see Jesus Christ becoming poor for us, powerless for us, marginalized for us, when we see him taking on uh, the injustice of the world, when we see him paying the penalty for our sins in our place, we become people who serve. See, our personal salvation is directly tied to our service. Because when we see that, when we see what he did, we become people who serve. That's who we are. Just like Atticus Finch. I can't go and worship God at church if I do not help that man. What has happened is the why of this week. Jesus Christ's atonement for your sins and my sins is the why for this week. It's not about guilt. It's about grace. It's about grabbing hold of, of the message of God's unconditional love for us through what he did in Jesus. That is our motivation for this week. As we go out into this week and serve in whatever ways we do, the why is grace. Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor so that through his poverty, you and I might become spiritually rich. Don't miss it. Don't miss him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in Jesus, uh, we have a motivation that isn't based on guilt or shame, but a motivation that's based on hope and love and and wonderment. That as we go out and serve in whatever ways we're going to serve this week, uh, we can get a taste of what will be. Father, I thank you so much for this church and this family. Uh, you, uh, You have been so faithful to us. Father, may we see your grace more boldly and beautifully than we ever have so that as we move out into the world, people see you. Father, transform us into the image of your son for the sake of others. And we pray all this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.